0: Hey, internet you're listening to episode five of open paren a podcast about librarians and code you can catch the complete show notes including links to whatever we end up talking about today at thatandromeda.github.io/open_paren, slash open underscore paren where you can also suggest guests and catch up on previous shows and in fact margaret is the first guest i have who has been suggested by someone else thanks francis um now we'll find out what he wanted to me to talk to you about it. It'll be great. Um, so today we are talking to Margaret Heller, who is a digital services librarian at Loyola University Chicago. She is also a writer for the ACRL Tech Connect blog and an active participant in both VITA and Code for Lib, and a board member of the Read Write Library of Chicago. And I actually wanted to talk about that last one first because I was there uh, a couple years ago when midwinter was in Chicago, and it was amazing, Uh, but I have no idea what you've been up to since then, and it's super cool. And so how about telling the internet what is up with that and what you're doing lately?
1: Okay, yeah, sure. So um, the Read Write Library Chicago, for those who aren't familiar, is a uh, independent library of works created by and for Chicago, so basically people who live in Chicago or write stuff about Chicago. Um, and it's very community-driven, um, volunteer-driven. And, um, you know, we've been working on um, a, ver- a variety of different projects, like going out into the community and having kind of materials about those communities available to people there to kind of come in and talk about what their, uh, what their relationship is to them contribute back more more items. Um, so that's been kind of why We call those pop up libraries. That's been going on. Uh, right now we're kind of trans- trying to transition a little bit to some more sustainable models um, of recruiting a new board, uh, doing some other um, some other kind of um, development work to try to development in terms of money and. Time and that kind of stuff, as opposed to like technical development, which is kind of what I've been working on before. So, um, you know, a lot of changes going on with that, but still going strong and still, um, still there for people and um, in a, you know, a a rapidly gentrifying community. But still trying to um, make sure that we're part of the community that that we're in to to you know get the stories of people who are actually there.
0: So does this mean that listeners who are in Chicagoland and interested in the library should contact you about getting involved?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, ReadWriteLibraryChicago.org, or ReadWriteLibrary.org, sorry. Um, And then I know you'll have it in the show notes as well. But then that will be uh, the place to go to to get the information about volunteering. Um, I don't do a lot of really hands-on day-to-day work anymore you know I'm more at work you know kind of big picture things Um, but there are a lot of people who are volunteering who are doing the the kind of hands-on like this is when you need to show up to volunteer this is when the meetings are so we can get you in touch with those people.
0: Yeah when I was there I was really struck by how like DIY and participatory it was. Um, it, It reminds me of do you know Stuart Brand's book How Buildings Learn Uh uh-huh yeah yes so where he talks about like high road versus low road buildings so you have your like extremely fancy impressive civic buildings which are things like libraries and city hall which are there to be like amazing and beautiful and stuff um and they're gorgeous but they're they're hard to modify because people feel kind of intimidated by those spaces and they may be actually physically built in ways that are hard to modify and then you have your low road buildings that are things that are maybe a little grittier but that means that people feel totally comfortable with experimenting and and like repartitioning the space and doing stuff with it and being creative and it, it felt like that ladder to me where people can like take ownership and be creative and do cool things
1: yeah absolutely and that's actually one way that we make money is because doing space rentals because it is a very easily configurable space and uh, it is, like, legal to have, like, it had, it meets all code requirements for catering and so on. You know, from that point of view, it, like, actually does, can function as that space legally. But then, on the other hand, we also can configure it really easily and and, and do different things with it. And so it, it makes that that possible. So uh, it's a not a huge space, but we can do a lot with that small amount of space. So people with money should rent your space. It'll be yeah. great. <laughs> awesome. Um...
0: Let's see. I also wanted to ask you about what exactly digital services librarian means in your context at Loyola because that
1: can mean so many different things. So which things does it mean for you. Oh, yeah, it's so funny, that the distinction between, like, a web services librarian or a digital services librarian and, and the libraries that have both. I was, like, curious, like, what does one person do versus the other? <laughs> like, my job description looks basically the same when I transferred. I, you know, I used to be a web services librarian. Now I'm a digital services librarian. It's very similar job description. But um, so what I describe that as being, for me, is I'm kind of in in charge of the, the front end stuff that, that users see, whether it's... Um, the look and feel of the website, the look and feel of dis- the discovery layer, um, the content in the re- institutional repository, though not the, um, I don't do any backend stuff, that's all, it's a vendor hosted thing. So um, I don't, but I don't do everything, you know, I don't do all the cataloging and all that for our books as well. So it's a little bit of a, a weird distinction, but basically it's like the front end web development and um, scholarly communications especially in terms of the institutional repository, though there's a large group of people who work on various scholarly communication um, projects. But I, I kind of oversee a lot of that in, in my role. So, um, and you know, other things that, that come up now and then. But um, I do I, I do increasingly more back end stuff um, because of our, uh, we've moved to a new ILS and discovery layer, which means I have to touch the back end of things a lot more than I ever used to, but um, that that's good, that's fine. It's, you know, whatever other web apps that come along that people need installed or uh, fixed or what modified. You know, we have things going back to, you know, 15, 20 years. Most of those oh, wow. retired, but over the last couple of years it was like fix, you know, get this cold fusion site from 2000 updated that needed, you know, needed some, some TLC. So th- that's the kind of thing where, um, just whatever comes along that people, that people touch that's digital, that, that's, that needs some, some work, I will uh, take a look at. And sometimes I'll say, I'm not the best person to, to do this and put them in touch with the right person who is. But sometimes I'll just say, oh, yep, I'll, I'll get this working for you. So how much
0: control do your systems actually provide you over the front end development, the look and feel that you're trying to do? So I know that that varies widely, and in some cases requires sort of gross hacks. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, we have um, – so our website is runs on Drupal. Drupal is kind of my my favorite platform to, to work on. So that one we can do a lot of uh, modification on. Um, we also run – I mean, we run a lot of things. We run Drupal, WordPress, Omeka, um, things I'm forgetting. But those are kind of our, our – you know some of our big ones that we use. We also run live guides as a spring share product that's hosted but we've been able to do a lot of modification to that um, which I've I've written about before the process of that Um, and then our ILS is Alma or it's sort of our it does a lot more than just traditional ILS but Alma from Ex Libris and then that runs along with Primo which is the discovery layer which we've also been able to modify a fair amount. Um, Not as much as I would like necessarily but I've done a lot more to it than I know a lot of a lot of sites do um, a couple things that were really important to me to happen that, that we made happen um, and then we have a lot of custom things that we've created over the years we um, get you know we're fortunate in having um, a systems administrator who kind of keeps our servers going and gets things set up for us that we need so if we need if we want to experiment with like a new platform we don't have a lot of we are generally pretty easily able to get like the the virtual machine set up that we need or whatever we need set up that he does that and so we can build a lot of things in-house it's just you know we've been trying to move away from that a little bit though over the last couple years because as the kind of vendor products have become better in some cases or do stuff that we just don't feel like trying to do in house Um, you know we've moved away from that Um, we used to have a lot more servers a lot more people back in the day but it's just just not necessary anymore Um, so we're doing less of that but we still have quite a few custom applications that run in house that we still have to keep going as well so those of course we have to maintain those ourselves (laughs) Make them look decent ourselves. So it's you know it's a it's a it's a struggle that I enjoy. Like I really without having I mean of course you have to do sometimes bad hacking to make things look good. But um, I, it's really important to me that things kind of have a unified feel to them and that they also you know have a have a look to them. People will want to use them. Um, you know I don't want to have a lot of things that look too. Diff, you know the, the the interface looks challenging for people. I want them to feel comfortable, feeling like I can use this to have a, a better a better experience. Um, and we're just, like a long way from really being there, but we we've gotten better over the last couple of years, kind of unifying our 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 look and feel across all our platforms and making sure things work together a little bit more seamlessly. Um, Do you yeah. have any particular?
0: Techniques like do you guys have a style guide or a set of like usability principles you try
1: to adhere to to Accomplish these ends. Yeah, well, we do have a couple things that we use that are kind of style guides. So like we do try to follow um, We don't have to we are again fortunate to not have to be on our university's CMS, so we have the flexibility to pick our own you know, our own platform, which we pick Drupal, and pick our own branding that can be somewhat different. But we do try to um, match that. We're currently not, our library website does not match our university's website at all. And our university's website actually is better, I would say, in many ways. Um, So that's something I'm I'm moving towards. So we kind of look at what they're doing, follow their standards um, as much as we can. And then we do a lot of usability testing um, and a lot of kind of, observational work through analytics or other things to try to figure out what's working for people but I would say our, our usability testing we try to do it you know we claim we do it three times a semester that's that would be nice if that was actually <laughs> how we did it but we definitely do it at least four times a year um, and we we bring in people to use all our things to kind of just see what what they say about it so you know do they say it do they mention that they like the look of it. Do they mention they don't like the look of it? A lot of people come and say, "Oh, yeah, the library website is kind of ugly or it's kind of plain." Um, and then we ask, you know, kind of, well, what would you like to see or, you know, what would be different? And uh, and so we use that information to kind of help us plan what we want to do and also just see if things, if people can't use things, then we see what's wrong with the design that they're not able to follow. Either what's wrong with the design or what's wrong with the services we're offering that they can't figure out what they're looking for so then we try to go in and, and modify that uh, and we, you know again with analytics too we kind of see like what's being used is it possibly because of where it's placed on the page is it possibly because of um, some other thing that's that's going on um, you know with that page so so we'll use that and then I also I we're not we're very much not as good as we need to be with accessibility but um, I do try to uh, do some there's a lot of it is based on like what is I think is going to be accessible for people, whether they're uh, if, if nothing else, make the text bigger so people can see it uh, who are, you know a lot of people and uh, you know have just trouble seeing small text, small gray text on a page so like is it actually accessible run it through a checker to find that out. Um, if it, If a interface relies on a little tiny link, that's hard to get to, like making a big button, especially if you expect people to use it in a mobile interface or with a touch screen, like make sure they can actually touch the link. Um, so things things like that are things I watch out for and just try to to um, do a better job with, like I said, we're not we're not perfect with that at all. It's trying to get better with that all the time though.
0: Do you have any particular favorite analytics tools?
1: Um, you know, we have been using and, and these are of course both privacy nightmares, so like a <laughs> grain of salt. Um, we use Google Analytics um, for a lot of stuff and we also use inspectlet. Um, inspectlet is a is a tool that does heat mapping and it does um, short recordings of user sessions. Um, but it's it's um, we have like a free version of it so we don't get a lot of sessions. it's only, I think it's like a hundred a month we get for that, but it's still it's still useful to kind of see some of that. Um, and Google Analytics as well will give you kind of some of that that heat mapping stuff, but what we'll look for a lot of times is what is the transition from um, how, how do people getting around a site like do they click right to the thing they need, do they have to click around a little bit. Um, things like databases, like if they're trying to find a specific database link how you know, we know that's something that people want to do we've made it really easy for them to do it so we're curious to see like how many people are using the really easy solution to find the databases or how many people are going the the old-fashioned long way and and try to track that and we, you know it's sort of it's sort of interesting a lot of people still do it the the way that they were used to doing it that takes longer than the new way we set up um so i don't know if those are people who just haven't looked at the new thing yet or they haven't gotten used to it or what they just like know that they have that thing memorized so they're just going to do that uh interesting then then of course we have to rather than once we've gotten that more like speculating on why is this happening well then of course we have to then turn to to the users turn to usability testing to really kind of find out why that is um do a survey to find out why that is you know come in, some of those more things so yeah those are the things we we do though those those two tools and um, we have a small group of people who is a um, we call the web team and in the past I don't know I mean when I say in the past I mean like in 2004 or so it seems like this group was a little bit better at kind of tracking some of the logs and analytics and things like that but We hadn't been doing that for the last couple of years, so now I have everyone in the group involved in collecting different reports, um, getting into the analytics tools, playing around with them, understanding how they work, Um, and then again the whole group participating in usability testing. So we can kind of divide that expertise so it's not just like in the systems department where I work, it's like the reference department can be aware of those trends as well, and cataloging can be. So everyone can kind of have a sense of, of how things are working digitally.
0: Oh, that's cool you can have a way to like cross-train on usability and spread that knowledge do do you have any way of mitigating the privacy issues i find i've been thinking about those a lot lately because uh i'm doing some coding for jason griffey's measure the future project and so far a lot of this has consisted with arguing with him about privacy which is a lot of fun um but it's like it's a challenging problem like how do you how do you collect data in a way that, that is actionable and lets you improve your services without becoming a complete privacy nightmare. Um, I, I guess I, when I, it's Google, there's, you can't control what Google does if you're using Google. But do you, do you have anything that you can do to mitigate that?
1: Well, I think you can. I mean, you cannot, use, you cannot use all the features Google wants you to use because that I think they're really pushing a lot of this idea of identifying individual users um, and doing a lot more cross-site tracking of them um, for advertising purposes. And I think there's, I think that the thing is on the one hand, we sort of look at that idea in libraries and say, oh, that would be really interesting to know what happens with that. But at the other hand, I just think it's dangerous to turn that on. It's You don't know what's happening with it if you don't really, really understand it um, and you don't really, really have informed your users what's going on. It's just too risky that you'll get information that you wish you didn't have. Um, and I think we're not, and I know, like, I definitely am speaking for myself here, we're not doing a very good job of, of explaining to users exactly where their information is being used and, and for what purpose in the library. Um, and I think it's a lot of times because we are not totally sure ourselves. Like, we haven't really thought about it. So I know there's been a lot of work mm-hmm. being done out there trying to figure some of this stuff out. But I, I think it's sort of important for us to look back and say, like, okay, what, let's tell people what's going on, but at the same time, don't track something. If someone has to use the library to get their coursework done, you know, don't don't track things about them that they wouldn't want tracked. Um, make it possible to opt out if 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 at all possible. Um, and what I do, what I try to do is just not record individual IP addresses of things that are happening ever. If we do have them, um, you know, look at it only kind of at a domain level or a you know a country level if possible because we like to track we have a campus in Italy so it is kind of important for us to know who's doing things in Italy versus in the US so like we have to look at but you can look at that just from the the very top level you don't have to get even into like if they're on campus or off campus or that kind of thing so I, I mean, we we do, and like when we're doing actual usability testing, it's very easy because we can sit down the person and say like, we're going to record this. This is how it's going to be used sign a release. That's really easy. But the rest of it is is more challenging. So um, I just you know I just try to think like, what's the worst thing that would happen with this data if I had it and someone asked for it, and if it's if it what the worst thing is, um, or even a kind of bad thing, even if it's not the worst thing that could happen, like how you know how big a problem would this be and it's a really big problem I just like I don't even want that I'm not even yeah. getting at that and yeah, not collecting data is really awesome for privacy right like if you <laughs> don't have it you, you
0: can't surrender it it can't be hacked it can't be subpoenaed I'm kind of a fan of not having data if I don't actually really really need it
1: yeah yeah just think question think, think critically about what's the question you're trying to answer and get that specific piece of information Um you know, and I think, like I said, we can do better about telling people what's going on, but uh, that's assuming they read it and understand it themselves, too. So you have to just watch out for people, not just assume that they're going to, like, understand that you've told them what the implications are. Mm-hmm.
0: So you've mentioned your usability testing a couple of times now. You just mentioned going through it again. And that that's one of those things that can mean anything from, like, a giant lab and lots of budget to, like, Matthew reads an hour and maybe there's some pizza, like, kind of thing so where where on the spectrum are you in terms of testing Do you have a script do you have a budget Do you have like reporting like how how much overhead or are, are we talking and what if people wanted to do their own how could they copy you
1: oh sure well like all my best ideas it's stolen directly from Matthew Readsma. so um, <laughs> shout out to Readsma. yeah so um, yeah I know we're kind of on that 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 end of the spectrum so what we do is um, we have a script that is taken from Steve Krug's book, Rocket Surgery Made Easy. Um, so he wrote, Don't Make Me Think, and then Rocket Surgery Made Easy is sort of the specific, like, this is how you could run this sort of lightweight usability testing. So we basically, we've taken that script, it's, it's on his website. I think you could just download it and use it, edit it. Um, and we have uh, a website people can go on to sign up for times for testing, and we do recruitment. Generally, we try to get newer students, um, just so that they're not, as I say, corrupted by librarians <laughs> yet, but um, it varies. Sometimes we'll have like student workers in the library um, who are working, like, front-end, who they don't have any research experience. They're so just sitting at the desk signing people in or something like that, so we can, we can get them, but they're not they're not necessarily particularly, they've never maybe looked at the library website in particular before. Um, We also do, uh, we do offer a short, a small stipend to people for doing this. So we can give people money if they're not working for the library already, which really helps recruitment. Um, And they sit in this actually, the very seat I'm sitting in right now, um, and we use the same room for uh, doing the testing. And they come and sit down and there's one other person and we uh, record it using Camtasia. and the one person sits there and asks questions. Sometimes I do have a note taker in the room Um, especially people are trying to learn how to do the testing they'll just observe quietly in the back and take notes and kind of see what I'm doing, what the technique is um, so they can do it in the future. And then um, takes 20 minutes usually we come up with a list of questions. We usually have about eight questions or so that we come up with uh, ahead of time that are covering certain types of things we want to know about. Um, We also give a chance for people to ask like hey you know like why is this do this or whatever you know give their general observations uh, and then we have the again the like observer worksheet that Steve Krug has have people fill that out the best solution you know he says is have everyone sit in another room and watch this over video conferencing the scheduling for that is just not possible it's it's just not something we can do um, and stay sane so we're <laughs> So as he says, like if you have a video, people are supposed to watch. They probably won't watch it, uh, and we do have that experience sometimes. But we generally just I edit the videos to take out any identifying uh, information about people. Like if they type in their username and password, I just obscure their username so it can't be seen. Um, and if they if they say something like "Yeah, I work for the such and such desk" or like say something where like their boss could clearly know who they are, I take that out. Um, Obviously, they they might still recognize the voice, but at least they they won't be as obvious. So I tr- I try to take out any identifying information, stick that up on our um, shared internet or f- folder um, thing, and then people watch it and fill out the observer worksheet. And I f- take that and we pick like two or three things to fix on the website and and fix that. Sometimes it brings up longer term projects that we you know kind of have to then address, but usually we come up with two or three really simple action items we can take out of that uh, to do that and then then go around for the next cycle. So we're not, you know, we're not super formal about it a lot of times, but it's enough of a process we can we can make some sort of data driven decisions. Uh, we were a little more formal with over the summer when we were doing our new discovery layer because we wanted a lot more people to weigh in on these decisions and there were a lot more you know, data, it wasn't just like, oh, let's make this button red rather than white. It was like, we need to like think if we need to reload our data in a whole different way or or do something totally different with the way we're cataloging this one collection. And we did discover some of those things, but those are, of course, much longer projects that are not going to, it's not just fixing one thing quickly. But we do try to document what we change out of each session so we kind of know, like, okay, we asked this and we got this good result and we're able to do this. Or we asked this and it, it wasn't useful at all or you know, whatever. Sure, we're not we're not wasting our time going forward.
0: So it sounds like you have a really strong usability culture in the library and people have, have bought into this being a good thing. How did that come to be? Because I know that's not universal.
1: You know, I I'm not totally sure how it came to be other than when I so I've been at this job almost three years, so we three years in January. And when I came in, I had been really big on usability testing at my old job and had um, done a lot of work with usability testing. And so I was kind of used to that being a thing. And so I came in, and I was like, oh, so where's, is there any usability testing going on the website? Do, like, do we have any user data? And the answer was, well, we did a survey like earlier this year and have some information. But that was about it. And I said, OK, well, we're doing usability testing. So then we'll have that information going forward. So I kind of just was like, that's what we're doing for. Because I was like, "I you hired me to do this job. This is how I do the job, so this is what we're doing. Um, so that worked out well, but I think in general over the last couple of years, the the administration has has become very interested in user experience, and um, you know, kind of from like looking at it from user centered assessment perspective of we want to assess things, but we want to make sure we're assessing things not just on like you know how much they cost or whatever, but like how they how they really work for our users. So. Um, that I think I was just lucky to have an administration that was totally on board with that. And we've actually had a, a user experience uh, kind of workshop for staff. Um, we've had a couple of different staff workshops that everyone can take, not just for faculty librarians, but anyone on staff can can kind of participate in these to learn a little bit more about um, how to do how to how to think about user user testing, usability, ethnography, all kinds of things like that. so, I would say that the digital services are the things where it's happening the most, but we are aware of it in general, like what, what's going on. So I don't want to say, I mean, I, it's not like I necessarily changed everything just myself, but it it definitely was one of those things where, again, when you start a new job, you're in your best negotiation time. So that's the kind of thing to come in. It's like, this isn't something we were doing. Like this is a basic tool that we need. It's like, I need this on my computer. I need these programs. I need, um, you know, a, you know, I need health insurance. Whatever I need, you know, I need to usability testing. So these are just things you can throw in when you're starting.
0: Um, but otherwise, I
1: think you can always start small. And I think people are convinced pretty quickly if you if you have recordings and someone in power sees the recording and thinks something they thought was really great, they like find out from a you know neutral like a neutral source. It wasn't you telling them it was bad. They find out from an actual person who pays money to be to go to school here that something is <laughs> terrible. Then they're like, oh, okay, this needs to change. So has there been anything that is particularly
0: surprising that's come out of the usability tests, or th- things that have made people like rethink? Oh yeah, the library website should not be like that. It should be like this other thing.
1: Um, I think it's. I think one of the main things that that has kind of been an issue that I still don't think we've re- resolved, but it's, it's something people were thinking about a lot was um, like our, our research guides. Like we have live guides, and people put a lot of work into them, and there's lots of ways people can get to them, but. Um, students would, we would ask leading questions in our usability testing to try to get students to, to find a guide, and sometimes they could just could not do it at all. We've made it super obvious, like there's a really like can't miss it link, or not even a link, it's a drop down box of all of our research guide subjects, like right smack dab in the middle of the page, like you think you couldn't miss it, um, to try to get people into that. People are still sometimes missing it. And when they get in, I was like, oh, have you ever seen this before? And sometimes they just have not, or they thought, like, oh, I saw it in class, but I never looked at it again. And they look at it, it's like, this is really useful information. But they would have no idea how to find it or what, you know, like, what it would be called. So that's something where I don't, I don't know we've come up with social. We try to make it a lot easier, and I think it is easier for people now to find it. But then it's like communicating what it's for is a different kind of problem that I, I don't think we've, quite fixed yet, or perhaps ever will. But um, we're getting, I think we're getting better. We certainly have a pretty good structure in place to improve them, but that that was something where it's like, okay, we really need to to think about this. Um, You know, there's just like little things that have come up all the time, but uh, it's just interesting how you think people are gonna be so good at a certain, you know, like certain problem you think, oh, they're definitely gonna have no problem with that. Totally, you know like for instance finding a specific issue of a journal impossible for people they cannot do it and and I mean some people can figure it out but most people it's just completely impenetrable like how would you find a specific issue of a journal Um and that's something we really it's you know we really need to to fix that issue and I'm not sure some of it I think people just are not familiar enough with they've never held an issue of a journal before it's not like I think If you went to school at a certain point like you probably did have to deal with a print journal and you may just not have to deal with it anymore So people don't even they can't even conceptualize like what's a an issue of a journal versus an article
0: It's all article level if it's yeah exactly right even though the indexing is I mean I gotta say personally like I had no idea how little I knew about library research and library services until my library degree which was by the way my second master's degree so like I should have known a lot more than I did but I I guess I'm not surprised that students don't realize that you have these research guides because they they solve a need but the students don't know they have that need
1: until they see the things. Um, Yeah unless it's like built into their I mean like I I think some majors is just not it's not built into it at all like I remember when I was in college um, you know I majored in classical studies so there were certain databases that we needed and certain things we needed to know but um you know I, I guess I learned a little bit about that but I definitely know there were a lot of things I was missing like I definitely remember in college like I had this concept you could just go to jstor and like that's where all the which I think was probably accurate for a lot of the research I was doing in in you know classical studies and philosophy but it probably <laughs> wasn't it it was definitely like I had the wrong concept of like go to jstor and do a search there it's like well that kind of works but you know, maybe there's some other things I should have been trying as well. But um, I guess you kind of rely on your professors a lot to set you straight. Then, if you're if you're doing if you're going about things the wrong way. I mean, I was also a classical
0: studies major. Yeah. Um, And I think my research plan was pretty much start the paper the day before it was due because that was when I could motivate myself to do it and use whatever resources were actually physically present and not checked out of the library because it was due in 24 hours and that was what I could do. (laughs) So like I had no idea that interlibrary loan was a thing and even if I had it. Kind of
1: wouldn't have mattered. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> don't be like
0: me, kids. I'm terrible. No, I'm a bad role I was model.
1: I was lucky to go to a, a college in Ohio, which has excellent interlibrary loan. That's like really well branded. So like I think everyone in Ohio knows how to do an interlibrary loan. It seems like to me. Um, the other thing that um, as I went to college that really like independent study was a huge pro- you did a huge independent study pro- project junior year and senior year everybody did that so some of those research skills had to be you know it's like you're spending a whole semester on the paper you're not you don't you can't start the night before so you do have to have some of those research skills built in and then like while you're writing on that paper you get a, a carol in the library that's just yours and you can lock stuff there so you could actually like. You were like next to books, and you could leave them at your desk and stuff like that. So it was a little bit easier to do some of that that in depth research. Um, and I also worked for the library, so I and I worked for the science library, so I knew all the science databases really well, which didn't help me with humanities, but at least I did have some clue of like, oh, here's where you go on the library website to like find the list of, of databases. Because occasionally I had to show people that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was I was also a math major, which was really my my primary thing. And we just didn't really use the library, you know, at an engineering school that many of your classes just didn't have a library component. And I think that's probably different now. Um, You know, the library seems to be doing a lot more outreach these days. And I think the whole makerspaces thing is gonna be great for anyone with an engineering school. But, you know, I I did problem sets out of my textbook, like 24 seven, and it just wasn't a thing that required going to the library. And so I, I didn't pick those skills up.
1: Um, Yeah, oh that's definitely an issue and that's like I think part of thing with 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 my whole thing with um, because I also do you know the other other part of my job is open access advocacy and helping people with that and so that's that's like a big thing in the sciences but what I I kind of am looking for like this seamless research experience for people that whether or not they've ever been to the library or know anything about library research like what is going to be useful to them in their in their discipline and so for the sciences a lot of time it's like how do we get people the stuff they need without you know, having to go through a lot of hoops that are maybe make sense for humanities research that don't really even make sense for, um, for hard sciences or math or something like that. That's, it's just a different world. So I try to look at, the, at that, but I'm not, you know, again, that's that's sometimes we have to really rely on, you know, when once we see the problem happening for people, but a lot of times we never even know that, that they're not, right. that they don't have those skills.
0: 'Cause they, they're not gonna be able to communicate it if they don't if they don't know that this is a problem that exists, they can't yeah. tell you they're having it. Or if they don't know that there's like a better alternative, then yeah, and huh. I can see why it is important to get people in a room and actually like see what they're doing and talk uh-huh, to them. Uh huh, yeah. It. Oh for sure. Hmm. Let's see, I know that I can only keep you for a few more minutes because you have a meeting going on. So I'm looking at my notes and trying to think about like what what was the thing that stood out most that I really want to make sure I ask about. Uh, I think a lot of people will be curious. You said Drupal is your favorite
1: platform. So why Drupal? Oh, and I know that's not always a popular I know. So people will be really curious. Um, I think I got, I first learned about Drupal in 2009. Um, that's like actually it was about the time I started my first professional librarian position um, is like about the same time I started learning about Drupal and I actually started learning about Drupal for the read-write library specifically because we were trying to come up with we wanted to do something with our content or that was not exactly what any other the content management systems had and that wasn't we didn't want it to be super complicated. So we've been trying to do a lot of the stuff in WordPress that just was not meant for to do it. Like it, you, could, you could hack WordPress to do it, but it was a real pain. It, it wasn't built into it. So um, Drupal is, um, it has all the things like, you know, you can make pages and you can, um, you know, have a front page and, and subpages and menus and things like that that you would expect in any content management system. But we found that the taxonomy builder in Drupal really helped us do a lot of things that uh, just weren't that weren't that easy to do in other in other systems so um, you can you know you can create as many taxonomies as you want you can have as many terms as you want they can be either control vocabulary they can be something that um, people entering content can can tag as, as they go along and then you can do a lot of stuff with those um, with those taxonomies in terms of presenting content and um, it's you know, it was it just did a lot of stuff we needed to do. So I was like, okay, I'll learn how to use this. So um, I did. I only I really only had familiarity with with WordPress before that. So I learned I learned Drupal and we set up the site. And then I really got into it because it just there's so many there's so many ways to do things in there. I mean, you have to kind of follow the Drupal mindset. Once you're in the Drupal mindset of like this is kind of how Drupal wants to present content and kind of how it wants to do things. Um, there's a lot, a lot of modules and themes that you can add on. So you can do pretty sophisticated things without necessarily getting into the code that much. You do kind of, for some things, you do you do really need to get in the code as well. But uh, it's, it's very flexible in that sense. Um, it's very, you know, there's a lot going on with it. And it's kind of really uh, challenging sometimes to wrap your mind around all the things that, all of the decisions that you need to take into account when you're saying, I'm gonna do this thing. It's like, well, you don't you think about all the dependencies for that thing. Like really work work through the whole problem to the end or you're gonna you're gonna find yourself in trouble. But once you do that, it's it's very easy and you can make things pretty well automated to to kind of do what you want them to do. Um so I, you know, I just really enjoy it's like I'd spent so much time learning the the Drupal mindset and learning all these different skills. I was like, well I kind of wanna just keep Keep doing this now that I know how to do it, and um, it's still so. You know, I still feel like every time I have a lot of. I think it's just because I have so many platforms I'm developing in right now. I get confused. I'm like, okay, this is how you do things in Drupal, and then this is how you do things in WordPress. This is how you do things in Omeka, and like I can't. Remember, you know, I sometimes have to sit there. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> it's like it's all PHP in there somewhere, but it's like you know. But then it's like, well, do I want it to do this? Is it going to be in this file? Like how are the structure what's the file structure set up i can't remember a lot of times i'll like go and look like oh here's where everything is so that is kind of a problem that i i have but it's it's a nice problem to have because it means i have a lot of i have a lot of tools at my disposal for kind of if, if problem really shouldn't be solved in drupal it really shouldn't be solved in one other platform like we have other ones available so pick the one that does make more sense so like we do all our library blogging in wordpress for instance we don't attempt to do blogging in Drupal because it's not as easy to like WordPress is really really nice for blogging so we do all our blogging in WordPress and just integrate it with Drupal um, to get the to get links to the content in WordPress.
0: Yeah I noticed a lot of your stack was open source which I presume is very
1: congenial
0: for hacking things together and making them do what you actually want them to do.
1: Yeah and I think I think a lot of that probably a lot of those decisions were cost over the years but I think a lot of you know we because again, we do have the infrastructure to support a fair amount, not everything, we cannot support like a lot of the open source things we'd like to support, like uh, repository, software and that kind of thing, like we kind of don't feel like we can support that, but certainly like the the sort of more simple content management systems, um, we do feel confident in our ability to support those. So you
0: mentioned having a really good sysadmin earlier and like shout out to good sysadmins because mm-hmm. they make everyone's life so much better. Um, but what what do you think are the limits on your ability to support repository software?
1: Well, a lot of it is it's not like we can, you know, we can install it. That's probably fine. But then it's like, what, do, you know, how do we maintain it going forward? Do we have the, um, do we have the mental bandwidth to kind of, keep something like that going as well as doing all the other services that are on top of that. So for instance, um, a good example is our institutional repository. So I um, manage the sort of content and policy side of that, and uh, but our back end runs on digital commons from Press. And the, I don't have to ever like touch that code, it just, I can't touch it. It's very closed source, but it's something that like, it runs pretty well, and I don't have to worry about it. So we can we can do a good set of services on top of that in terms of, you know, getting content in there and um, helping faculty understand open access. We don't have to do all the other um, maintenance. Versus like my old job, we actually ran DSpace in house, and I did all of the development for DSpace about you know quarter of my job, if that, which is not really enough time. So I told someone that last week and I was like, you know, that's not enough time. So we did pretty well getting DSpace running and looking decent and all that stuff, but we then also had to support all of the services of like open access advocacy and getting stuff in there and, and all that, as well as then trying to keep, you know, keep the lights on basically with it. And then um, people would ask for features that we just had no way of implementing because we just did not have the time to do it. So that's the kind of thing where where you, we sort of worry about some of those things It's like what is the real service we're trying to provide and if the real service we're trying to provide is our expertise in um, in like getting the content in there and managing the content and understanding that does it make sense for us to spend all our time trying to learn the the a new software platform or new you know especially if it's not a language that any of us have any familiarity with like is it something we really want to spend that time on and and sometimes we do like I think we're very interested in Hydra and we're very interested in kind of some new things that are coming along that we'd have to expand our skill set and that's fine like we're willing to do that but we want to make the investment in time I think with something that's going to be so huge and really change the services that we offer in a a big way Um, we want to think that through thoughtfully and like what are what's the real benefits like maybe it does make sense to to pay for somebody else to do something, so that we can actually spend our time offering the service the correct way. Um, and I think you know, a lot of it's just like, it kind of, like even if we can install it, um, it's do we? You know, who, who is going to maintain it? And you know, like how much more work can we throw on one person who's who's trying to maintain things?
0: So I feel like I desperately want to talk to you about like learning new languages and strategy and time management and all sorts of things but I know that you have a meeting to get to really soon so uh, I i am going to have to let you go now. Um, is there any one last thing you want to say to the internet while you still have them here?
1: Oh sure I mean I can just say like kind of touching on all of that stuff that you just mentioned all in one there. I, I'm very big on like learning through new things but learning them on work time like structure your yes. life so that you don't have to work at night um I definitely um and that's that's like work I've been doing it's like the expectation that people should be learning you know off hours like I'm you know as a lot of people know I have a two-year-old um and a lot of people met my two-year-old at conferences I take him to a lot of conferences I keep traveling like I stay really active and stuff like that, but I also I also have like to I have to put them to bed and then watch TV at night and stuff like that. So those are other important parts of my life. So I think that's that's something I want to say is like when I do all this stuff, like I really do try to keep it sorry during sane work hours and I kind of encourage everyone to like do the same thing and make your work make at your workspace that's like a normal thing to do. Like you're not working all the time. Cause I think if, if everyone just kind of has that attitude. Um, it does help make that more normal. So that's that's my last little message to, to everyone.
0: Or plea to the managers of the world. Yeah. Let people learn work skills at work. Yes. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, and, and I'll see you around on Twitter and conferences and maybe your little kid too. Yeah, thank you so
1: much for inviting me. It's, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for being here. Okay, see bye. You.